Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Western Women's Summit Dinner Banquet featuring Molly Hemingway. Um, before we get started and dinner is served, um, we are going to um, do with a blessing, and I'm going to ask Emily Hinsler, and she's a student from Liberty University, to bless our food for us. All right, so in true evangelical fashion, I actually wanted to offer just a word of encouragement and a scripture that was on my heart um, just after, just over the time of the weekend. And it's found in the book of Esther, and it's chapter 4, verse 14. And it reads, For if you remain silent on this at this time, relief and deliverance for the, for the Jews um, will, will rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And I think that we can really look to scripture and Esther specifically as young women and look at her for guidance and as someone who under strict persecution, who had her life on the line, who st stood up for the injustices going on. So I would just, just, that was just on my heart and how we should have a spirit of an, like an Esther spirit when we're on our college campuses. So I just wanted to share that with you. Um, so if you guys can all just join me and bow your heads. Lord, I thank you for blessing us with this amazing opportunity to meet with other conservative women from around the country. Please help us to implement what we have learned over at this summit on our college campuses. And just as Esther spoke out on, on the injustices that occurred, I pray that you give us the same bold courage to continue to stand up for what is right, but not but will for what is right and will ultimately bring glory to you and not to ourselves. I hope, I pray that you help us to remember the scripture in John 16:33, which reads, I have told you this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And as we face opposition, um, as we keep the scripture to heart as we face opposition, because by no means, if the king of kings who conquered sin and death, he can surely help us conquer our current political environment on our college campuses if we place our trust in God. Thank you for this food, and I ask that you bless the hands that prepared it and help it nourish our bodies. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you, Emily. And um, now I'm going to ask Andrea Vacchiano, who uh, attends Rutgers University and was also a CBLPI fellow, um, to lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. Ready? Please rise. All right. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Michelle Easton again, and I'm so happy to have the responsibility to introduce our speaker tonight. But first, what a wonderful meal tonight. Let's thank the cooks and the servers for their good work. And let me remind any students who haven't yet turned in your evaluation, there's still time. And if you finish it up tonight and you want to leave it somewhere for us, where would that be, Camille? Give us a Camille. What's your room, Camille? Leave it, leave it at, in an envelope at the desk for Camille, okay? Now, I'm delighted to introduce a woman we all love to watch on Fox News. She's a contributor, and to me, she's usually the most insightful and original thinking voice on the show discussing all the key issues. 
Our speaker, Molly Hemingway, is also a senior editor at The Federalist, an excellent website about politics and culture. And if you don't get their emails every day with their fine articles, you might consider signing up. Federalist. She's an exceptional writer. She was previously a columnist for Christianity Today, a senior writer for GetReligion.com, which analyzes how the mainstream media covers religion, and an editor at the conservative website Ricochet.com. And her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, National Review, First Things, Claremont Review of Books, to name just a few. I first met Molly about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago at a great big dinner put on by the Phillips Foundation where she received a $15,000 fellowship. I remember that. I was so impressed to analyze the changing nature of American civil religion. And prior to that, she was a reporter for Federal Times covering issues relating to government waste and federal workers. She's originally from Castle Rock, Colorado, and she graduated from the University of Colorado with a BA in economics. She's married to journalist Mark Hemingway, and Molly and Mark were the spring 2016 Eugene C. Pulliam Distinguished Fellows in Journalism at Hillsdale College. They must have been fun together. They have two wonderful children, uh, eight and 10, Evangeline and Lyndon. I sat next to the family once at a restaurant in Washington, DC, and her kids are so darling, so cute. She told me that her hobby is collecting vinyl records, all kinds. And uh, she and her husband, late at night to wind down, they watch Netflix to decompress after a busy day. <laughs> She's also very involved in her church, Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Alexandria. She teaches nursery school, and she's on the altar guild. Please join me in welcoming Molly Hemingway. Thank you very much, Michelle. Okay. Great. By the way, it's so lovely to be here with you, and I got to sit in on a few of the lectures toward the end of the day, and it is really great to see so many bright and capable young women taking some time to think about the issues that you're thinking about, and it's just, it really does my heart some good, but. Onto a darker topic. Um, on Friday, some women decided to boycott Twitter in a show of solidarity with Rose McGowan. She's the actress trying to hold some people in Hollywood accountable for their enabling of Harvey Weinstein, the alleged. This is really, this is really, uh, it's a good picker, picker upper kind of conversation to be having after dinner. The alleged rapist and serial sexual assaulter who controlled much of Hollywood for decades. And she says that Weinstein assaulted her, Weinstein assaulted her, and countless others have talked about his sexual assaults and otherwise inappropriate behavior. Now, whenever money and power and fame are in the equation, there are bad men who will take advantage of vulnerable women. And that's not just in Hollywood, that's, that's in a lot of places. What's shocking about the revelations that we're hearing in this story are the names of you know, some of the most famous and powerful women that we know of who were humiliated and assaulted by this man. The sheer number of women who were victimized 
by him. And perhaps I think one of the most shocking things about it is learning how Hollywood power players and the media covered up this scandal. They all knew about it for so long, and they all worked to cover it up. I think it's worth noting that Weinstein is not as much of an outlier as people claim. They want to make this all about him. Yes, he was particularly bad. And he was so bad and so prolific that his sexual assaults had actually kind of broken through to the popular consciousness a little bit. You know, 30 Rock was making jokes about um, him pressuring actresses to sleep with him. At award shows, the hosts would make jokes about how actresses didn't have to pretend anymore that they were attracted to him. But then, when people received their awards, they would always make sure to thank Harvey Weinstein. He was that powerful. He's not the problem, but just part of the problem. And I know this from my own friends who work in the Hollywood industry, that it is riddled with studio executives, producers, and other powerful men who prey on vulnerable men, women, and children. Sarah Polly, who's a director and an actress, writes in this weekend's New York Times, Harvey Weinstein may be the central casting version of a Hollywood predator, but he was just one festering pustule in a diseased industry. Maybe you've heard, I know I've heard rumblings of another powerful executive who preys on teen boys. Corey Feldman has been pushing, Corey Feldman was like a huge star when I was your age, so like 40 years ago, um, has been pushing for justice for his friend Corey Haim, who died in a drug overdose decades after he was raped by an adult man. Feldman said he was molested by a man during his child actor days. Do you guys know who Terry Crews is from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and also the president in Idiocracy, which is one of my favorite movies that you should check out? He reported that last year he was physically assaulted, groped in front of his own wife by some powerful Hollywood type and that he was humiliated and torn apart by this. Again, every industry with money, power, fame has these problems, and even some industries that don't have a lot of power, money, and fame have these problems. But when you have the combination of so much wealth and so much celebrity that Hollywood does, it's, I mean, this is just, I think, probably the beginning of a pretty big story. We continue to reap the negative effects of the sexual re revolution, which served powerful men while harming the most marginalized in our society, the poor, the powerless, the people who had to battle government and societal incentives to keep families together. Elite and wealthy men and women can navigate the destruction of social norms far more easily than lower and middle classes. Okay, back to women boycott Twitter. Do you guys even use Twitter? Okay, I'm, I'm really good on Twitter, and it's the most embarrassing thing to say that you're good on Twitter because it's such a waste of time. But um, So I heard about this, hashtag women boycott Twitter. I didn't particularly feel like joining. I am a horrible joiner to begin with. And I also felt like the entire problem with this story is that people were being silent in the face of violence and injustice, so I didn't really think that being silent was like the most effective protest posture. And instead, I believe in speaking out against what Hollywood and other corrupt industries and other things uh, do to women, treating us as nothing more than sex objects to be discarded. It's one of the things I try and write about and speak about in my public appearances. Well, 
The Washington Post wrote about the failure of women to show solidarity with other women. The piece was really one of those intersectionality. As bad as my time at the University of Colorado was, I did not have to deal with all the intersectionality craziness that you people have to deal with, so my sympathies. But anyway, it was really one of those intersectionality articles about who is the most oppressed and whether Rose McGowan, who is a white woman, should have the sympathy of black women when white women were told don't care about the plight of black women. But then it got to the real grievance, and I quote, Despite Hillary Clinton being the first woman in American history to become a major party's presidential nominee, large percentages of women voted against her. The majority, 61% of white women without a college degree supported Trump, as did sizable percentages, 44%, of white college-educated women, according to exit polls. Consider the assumptions in that paragraph. The assumption that women are obligated to vote for someone on the sole basis that the candidate is a woman. This is something we would never demand of men. And never mind that the woman in question belongs to a political movement that denies the reality of biological distinctions in the first place. The idea that men and women are objectively different and that sex is not determined by the feelings that you feel, but the reality of how you're made. Never mind that the movement that that female candidate belongs to may oppose the views that you hold as a woman, that all life is sacred from conception to natural death, that gestating the next generation is not something to be fought against with violence or forced sterility, but to be celebrated and honored and encouraged, that natural family formation and duration protects women and their loved ones, that a society that honors women won't force us all on the same narrow career path that does not do a good job of emphasizing our hopes for work-life family balance. Or even that the best way to take care of future generations is to have a restrained, responsible, limited government. No, because you're a woman, you're supposed to, according to the Washington Post, just support female candidates. Now you'll note, probably, that this is not an equal demand placed on liberal women when conservative women run for office. It just works the other way. A couple years back, there was a syndicated radio host named Randy Rhodes who said about conservative women, you know, these women, somebody really needs to go repossess their ovaries. Really, truly, they have no right to them. They are fabulous little organs, and they have absolutely no right to be estrogen-bearing beings, okay? Just cut them off, let them go through the hot flashes, let them just sit there and complain about hormone therapy, okay? Just take the ovaries and get it over with, because they don't deserve to have estrogen. They really don't. It's a privilege. That is a real quote. I just want to emphasize. Um, also, a couple years ago, Pennsylvania State Representative Babette Josephs, who's a Democrat from Philadelphia, said about women who disagree with her politically, what are they, women or are they men with breasts? She said that they're acting like women only in the sense that they will do what the men tell them. They must believe they're not capable of making their own choices. I don't understand it. I don't believe it. I don't believe they're really women. I believe they're men with breasts. Um, back when you were six years old or whatever, Sarah Palin was, the, was only the second woman to be tapped to appear on a major presidential ticket when she was chosen to run with Arizona Senator John McCain. 
The Washington Post published someone saying that Palin's, quote, greatest hypocrisy is in her pretense that she is a woman. This is the type of treatment that you get when you are not a leftist woman. The fact is that there are no issues where women are all in agreement. I mean, even in this room, even something like abortion, about half of the country, half of the women in the country identify as pro-choice, about half identify as pro-life. And when you make it so that only one of those positions is considered okay for women to hold, it dehumanizes all the women who don't adopt leftist talking points. A few years back, the Washington Post's, I'm talking a lot about the Washington Post, I'm sorry, but it is a big paper, but they have a guy who writes for them named Dana Milbank, and he mocked me and a few other women for our claim that marriage is good for women. We had been discussing women's happiness on a panel at the Heritage Foundation, and our larger discussions centered around how, as women's opportunity sets have expanded dramatically, our reported measures of well-being, basically happiness, have somehow gone way down. And for more on this, you can read two actually quite liberal economists, Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolf Wolfers, and they call it the paradox of declining female happiness. We were discussing some of the reasons why that might be and how this affects voting preferences and whatnot. And one of the things we noted was that elites are getting and remaining married, but others aren't. And how this has seriously negative socioeconomic consequences for women and children. This not only has the benefit of being true, when you are not married, you miss out on the economies of scale and other benefits of marriage, and that's tr particularly rough on women, and that's particularly rough on women who have children. It's also not even remotely controversial in the real world. Like, there are surveys all the time about whether people want to get married, whether or not they're married, would they like to get married? And overwhelmingly, people report either that they're married or they'd like to get married. It's a very tiny percentage who don't actually have that in their, in their life goals. So the collapse of marriage culture, as you might have heard, not as many people are getting married now as, as in decades past, but the collapse of marriage culture is something that is out of alignment with the goals of the vast majority of women and men themselves. And if you're unmarried, as I assume most of you are, but you wish you are someday, you might wish society was paying a little bit more attention to this issue about the decline of marriage. But Mr. Milbank and his man-ears picked up that what we'd actually said was that women should kick back, take it easy, exit the workforce, and let men do all the hard work. I am not joking. He said that we told women to get their MRS degree and then lean back. And I quote, if Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg's mantra is lean in, these women were proposing that women lean back, get married, take care of kids, and let men earn the wages. Now, normally I wouldn't even bother responding to Dana Milbank because he's such a hack, but <laughs> much to my surprise, he was taken kind of seriously, like a senior editor at Texas Monthly tweeted out a link to the story and admonished, hey, conservatives, let me know if you want some useful advice on how not to alienate women. Before we get to the sort of second part of that, I have to respond to this Dana Milbank claim that marriage, much less motherhood, is all about kicking back and taking it easy. This is part and parcel of a particularly destructive strain of feminism that devalues the work of building loving and nurturing homes 
in which children are brought forth and cared for. Far from being about leaning back, there is literally nothing more forward-leaning or life-affirming or humanity-perpetuating as building a family, marrying and giving birth to children and raising those children to adulthood. I am a wife and I'm a mother and I'm sick to death of being denigrated as a second-class citizen for focusing on my children's well-being by making career decisions that have enabled me to be home with them every day. I am done with this. I'm so sick of people for ridiculing some of us for making career decisions that enable us to have lives built around more than just paychecks or jobs. I'm sick of being blamed for not having the same idea as some people do about the wonder of STEM careers or corporate executive jobs as that narrow group of women featured so prominently day after day in our media. If anything, our culture would be far better off if our major media outlets and our political leaders praised women who use our natural gifts to create safe, loving, and nurturing homes for our spouses and children. Anyway, got that off my chest, sorry. But the main part of his media, of his objection, this, this Washington Post guy, was that it's a terrible idea to promote marriage as good for women. And for a while now, many people in the media have been highly invested in perpetuating war on women messages and memes. And these serve, frankly, democratic political interests. And it also seems like they kind of want to have it both ways. Like the day after I got mocked in the Washington Post, there was, in the same paper, a news story headlined, Democrats target unmarried female voters. Hmm, imagine that. It's almost like if you don't get married, you're much more likely to have a favorable view of big government. But the story was straight news, no mocking about how Democrats are building computer models to target single women. No one made snarky comments about whether it was healthy for women, much less society, to have a major political party having the incentive of keeping us single throughout our lifetimes. You know, might be worth noting. And more importantly than the partisan issues, this mocking of people who promote marriage is bad for those who are most hurt by the failure of the American family, which are, again, poor women and children. Oddly enough, Dana Milbank makes that point well. He'd written, he'd written he's, he's very partisan, so he was very upset about a Paul Ryan budget a couple years back that he thought was unfair to the poor. And one of the things he pointed out was that 70% of adult recipients of Medicaid are women. 63% of adult recipients of food stamps are women. 62% of Pell Grant recipients, women. Uh, Two-thirds of the poor and elderly recipients of Social Security, women. 85% of adult recipients of welfare, women. 82% of the recipients of housing vouchers were households led by single women. 75% of child care assistance goes to households led by women. You see a pattern here. And he was pointing out that, you know, if you're in the military, the government isn't cutting out your funds, and that's mostly married men who are in the military. He was saying that he thought that high-earning married men should be subsidizing single women. Um, he knows, in other words, that the wealth accrues to the married people. 
He knows that marriage is good for wealth creation and avoidance of poverty. And yet he mocks people who talk about how good marriage can be for those who are marginalized. Nick Kristoff wrote in the New York Times a couple years ago that he sort of begrudgingly acknowledged that conservatives had been right on a few things. And one of the prime examples he gave was family life. He said, conservatives highlight the primacy of family and argue that family breakdown exacerbates poverty. And they're right. Children raised by single parents are three times as likely to live in poverty as kids in two-parent homes. And he went on. When I was in this panel discussion at Heritage, there was a man in the audience who was an educator. He was there with his wife. He was liberal, and he said flat out that he disagreed with most of, of what I had written previously. But he was saying that he did have to acknowledge that he and his wife had learned as educators that children from intact families have much higher educational attainment than those from other family situations. What could be done to improve marriage culture, he asked. I suggested that everyone who's married work to improve their own marriage and model better marriages for the culture, and that the media should start covering the reality of the marriage situation better. I said that with that guy Dana Milbank sitting right there, and even though you know we all kind of know that the facts, and he knew the facts, that marriage is good for poor women, he decided that instead it was too easy to mock those of us who encourage it. This is the problem that conservative women face. We're routinely ignored by the media. Our views are erased from national conversations, or they are mocked. Sometimes the hostility is downright shocking. Whether it's in the media, in pop culture, or in college campuses, this is just sort of routine. It would be nice for people who claim to be feminists uh, to acknowledge that women are individuals, each with the ability to think for ourselves, that we should not be expected to mindlessly follow one point of view or treated as idiots who must be told what to think and how to act as if all women are gonna have the same response. Nobody, again, would ask this of men. We should support each other with the right to think for ourselves. So what do we do about the hostile media culture? What do we do about the hostile culture on campus? I think, first of all, you just continue to live lives motivated by good values. Strength of women is in our vocations, whether that's mother or daughter or sister, neighbor, friend, volunteer, someday CEO or something in between. The true strength of society is in these little platoons, our families, our neighborhood interactions. And I also think that serving our neighbors requires us to speak out more. And I'm really happy actually that in the portion of today that I attended that that was a main theme. I get a kick actually out of how I have friends all across the political spectrum, and like my really crazy liberal friends on Facebook have no compunction at all about saying absolutely crazy stuff on Facebook. They're like, they just throw it out there and they just expect people to just take it. Really crazy stuff. Um, and then I watch my conservative friends sort of quietly say nothing out of fear of how it will affect their friendships. I think people need to know in love why we don't share their views they may not have received the same benefit of education that you have received. They may have not considered opposing arguments or realized that you don't share their views. There's no way they're going to know that when you're silent. And it's, you know, it's sort of so obvious, but I don't think we think about it. If a friendship is lost over you sharing 
your slightly different political views, it's not really a friendship to begin with, so it's not a bad thing to learn. So I don't think that our failure to speak up is really because of us being women, although that, you know, there's, there's a stereotype of women being demure or whatnot. I think it has a lot to do with sort of it's intrinsic to being conservative. You want the freedom to be left alone and not have everything be political. But the fact of the matter is that leftists pretty much control all major institutions. So even marginal positions have the appearance of being dominant, uh, majority positions. It's real easy for you to puncture that bubble that some of our leftist friends are in simply by speaking up. You don't need to go on a crusade, but when you see a Facebook post about how evil conservatives are denying birth control to 62 million women, simply speaking up and saying, actually, no, that's not true, is good. Not only is, by the way, I, I can't stand that way that people put that. Like, my boss does not pay for my lunch, but I don't every day say, why are you denying me access to lunch? <laughs> you know? Um, but explaining that the recent regulatory changes just created a slight, and I do mean slight, religious exemption to the law that forces people to pay for abortifacients, sterilization, birth control. I mean, right now, we have the Little Sisters of the Poor, which is a group of nuns that devote their lives to caring for people at the end of life. And they were being forced by this mandate to pay for abortifacients. Obviously, the Little Sisters of the Poor <laughs> Are having none of that, but they've had to spend so much money fighting this legally just so that they can have the religious freedom that we all know that we're supposed to have in this country. Um, this slight, tiny little exemption actually doesn't even help them out necessarily. And I think like a total of a few dozen companies nationwide have even requested an exemption from this onerous mandate. Anyway, if you speak up and you have the facts, you personally demonstrate that there are plenty of rational and intelligent people who exist outside the liberal groupthink on so-called women's issues. It's often humiliating for liberals to confront what conservatives actually think because they're unprepared to rebut what conservatives actually think. They have no idea what the arguments even are. You know, if you want to know what liberal women think, you just go to class or turn on the TV, or go on the internet. And a lot of leftists don't have that. They don't know to go to the Federalist, or National Review, or First Things, or whatnot. They have no logical answers, therefore, to conservative arguments. I'm not saying they couldn't get them, but that's just the state of, of affairs right now. And so frequently, they discredit themselves with angry hyperbole. You can also talk to people in positions of power. You are now at the age where you should start, be, start doing that a lot. Um, you know, next time a reporter gets something wrong in a story, so like in 20 minutes, um, <laughs> go ahead and contact them via social media or otherwise, you know, email and whatnot, and just gently explain to them what they missed or what they didn't get. Do it nicely. Nice goes very far. Um, is your member of Congress, your senator, your president not reflecting your values and their policies or approach? Reach out, let them know and start thinking about pushing your way into these professions. You know, you're not too young to be published writers. You can send good articles to me. We love publishing really good articles written by college students. Um, we love publishing women. That's one of the things that we're really, really happy to be doing. You know, start thinking about more political involvement. And same goes on you know, campus. I do not envy you people spending so much money 
to, in some cases, not be getting a great education. You have to like kind of educate yourselves on your own and go to class. Um, that's just what you have to do because you also need to educate your fellow students about what they're missing in the classroom. Your very presence is important. Organize with other like-minded people to help introduce the ideas of freedom and liberty, obviously using groups like um, the Claire Booth Lewis Policy Institute to help you with some of this. You know, and you're gonna have to overcome a lot of obstacles to do that. But no matter what the world throws at you, I encourage you to have the confidence in, in the strength of your positions and of the confidence of knowing that you have eternal truths, uh, the joy that comes from sacrificing for others, and just the joy of day-to-day -day living. So with that, I have some time for questions. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Um, can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. <laughs> um, my name is Nafisa, and I'm a student at Northeastern University in Boston, um, where one really big issue, considering it is a huge college state, um, or city rather, is like, you know, things like sexual promiscuity is like running like wild. How would I, to like my peers and whatnot, address that and its potential ramifications within like the marriage culture and whatnot? I am so fascinated by this issue in particular. I mean, you're seeing in some cases, like, okay, right now you have so much uh, obsession about rape culture or, um, sexual misbehavior on campus. That's like a huge national issue. And you will hear conservatives like respond to it negatively. Uh, and partly that's because a lot of what's happening in that discussion is just kind of fraudulent. You know, the people, oh, one in four girls are raped on campus. I mean, if that were true, I can tell you not a single one of your parents would allow you to be on campus. At the same time, I mean, that's just, I'm a mom, I know how this works, if it were even, you know, anything approaching that. But at the same time, there is a problem. And it's obviously a problem. Like, there's no, I have a niece who's a freshman in college, and, like, there are no guidelines or rules on dating, and that is a recipe for disaster for people your age. Not that you're not, you know really smart, great people who can navigate life's most complex dance on your own at the age of, you know, 17 through 21 or whatever. But um, I think there's actually a lot of room for agreement on this topic. Like, we used to have some norms associated with sexual behavior that kind of helped everybody. You would know who was a good guy versus a bad guy. You would know how to get to the path from single to married. And now all bets are off. And on the left, you have people freaking out about it in a rape culture way. But on the right, you know, I think there's not a lot of satisfaction with hookup culture and what it's doing to people either. So I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what your question is, and I probably should have asked before that, but I kind of feel like, <laughs> I kind of feel like there's room for left and right to come together on some of this stuff. And um, I was actually, I was gonna write a piece when I was at Hillsdale I met these people who run an underground courtship society. <laughs> and it's awesome. Like, you have to apply to get in. And then you get assigned, like, a date on a Friday. 
you each pay your own way. Um, but if you, but if it goes well, you know, the, or, you know, there, it's sort of low pressure because a lot of young men do not have money to take people out of this, you know, age. if it goes well, you know, the guy is, uh, no, but anyway, you, you meet together to gather, you get assigned, you go out, and then you come back at the end of the date and you kind of regather. So if it didn't work out, you can still have a nice time with your, you know, friends and whatnot. And I was thinking, this is like a great idea. People should do totally countercultural, weird things like this, you know, just to help people figure out ways to navigate. Because, I mean, it's a really important thing to find a good spouse, and college is a great time to, to find that out. Um, but anyway, sorry, that really went far afield. Did you actually have a question I should have answered better there? My question was, how do I, like, talk to my peers and whatnot about, like, how to better themselves, like how to not be part of like the hookup culture, how marriage is important and how they should be, you know, like going for this and advocating it basically. I mean, this is going to sound awful, but I'd say first and foremost, just focus on yourself. You know what I mean? Like don't even worry about what other people are doing necessarily. Okay. Um, but I like to just ask people questions like, so you've hooked up with 10 guys this year. How's that working out for you? You know, like just, <laughs> like, do you feel great about that? Or, you know what I mean? Just kind of ask questions that get people to think for themselves about whether they're having the best approach. Um, and that way, when you're asking questions too, they can tell you a little bit more about what their values are. Uh, you know, but it's hard. Like, if you're not raised to have certain values, it's kind of hard to just get them on the fly. But best wishes. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma um, being in the media, what is one Wait, of the... Wait, what oh. is your name and where are oh, you Oh, sorry. From? I'm Megan, and I'm from Indiana. Nice. And um, I was just wondering, as a woman in the media, what is one of the biggest obstacles you've had to overcome? You know, that's a good question that I should have a good answer to, but I, um, I actually think my answer is kind of weird, which is I don't think of... I don't think that way. And I think that's a good, a good thing to do is to not think that way. Meaning, I am sure that if I sat down and thought about it, I could look at all sorts of things that have been really bad or obstacles, but why? I mean, I would rather focus on all the things that went well. Like, I was even thinking about this with the Harvey Weinstein story. Like, I am sure that many of us have had really bad experiences with men who are inappropriate. I like to think also about the fact that I have a wonderful husband. I had good boyfriends. I, had a, I have a great dad. Like one time when I was in high school, I had to call my dad because someone was inappropriate at my stupid part-time job. And my dad came down and took care of the situation, you know? <laughs> and I, I love that. You know, I like to think about what's good. But um, in general, I have found being a woman to be a good thing for my career, even in the way of I think about things a little differently than some other people. Or like the Federalist, which we started four years ago, we are right of center. We have libertarian and conservative discussions. And one of the things we'd noticed was that a lot of political and policy publications are read almost exclusively by men. I mean, that's even liberal publications are overwhelmingly read by men. And yet women are more likely to vote, or you know, bigger percentage of the pop of the voting population are women. So why is that? You know, and I would read all these conservative or libertarian publications, and it was really hard to find any female writers that were being published. Not like there'd be like 
in an issue of a given publication be like two women and 20 men. And when we started The Federalist, we just very intentionally wanted to have far more female writers. And to do that, we also thought a little differently about our business model. Like, we know a lot of women do not want full-time um, like writing careers. And some of our best writers are women who write for us like four times a year. They might even be like homeschool moms who have these amazing educations. They don't want to write more than four times a year. But they're able to explain things to young children. And if you can explain a high-level concept to a young person, you are a wonder you're probably going to be a really good writer. Because that's what writing is. You take these big concepts and you boil them down to, uh, to, to an audience that doesn't have the benefit of all your knowledge. And so by having a business model that focused on some of these types of writers, we have been able to publish much more interesting stuff than a lot of other publications. And it's all because of an intentional reach out. I don't know if I would have thought that if I weren't female or whatnot. Okay, great. Good. Thank you very much. Well, we come to our end. Molly, you're terrific. Thank you so much. What a thoughtful discussion. Uh, I hope all of you here, the students, the non-students, the gentlemen guests, we're so delighted to have some of you with us tonight. You're always welcome at our, our events. I hope you've been inspired by Molly Hemingway and all the speakers that came before, Noni and Rachel, Dr. Orient, Antonio, Julia, Peggy Grande, and Catherine Gorka. And thank you so much to the brave student panelists who told their story and all of those who asked great questions and did great introductions. Special thanks to the speakers. What a terrific job you did today. Thank you. <laughs> Students, I hope you are even more motiv motivated than most of you already are to go back to your campuses, to continue standing up to challenge the left and the wacky feminists who so dominate at most of your schools and explaining why conservative solutions work the best, and noting on the internet when they're off base, politely, I like that, very politely, but don't let them get away with misstating where we are as conservatives. Here at the end of the summit, please help me give a special thanks to our staff, Camille and Jeannie and Cindy and Elizabeth. Stand up, you two, stand up, thank you. There you go. There you go. Thanks to all of you for coming. Safe travel to you. God bless you all, and God bless America. <laughs>